So I'm still pursuing the question then of leadership, and I want to, to come on to uh, the topic of training in leadership and, um, and almost the subject of recovery of leadership, because I think we have wandered a long way away from the New Testament. Let's think first of all about the training of leaders. How, how does training work in the New Testament? We are trying to do a little bit of work together in New Testament doctrine. We're not just uh, guessing or coming up with good ideas. We're not just looking at what thing, the things that people do. We're asking the question, is there any kind of model in the New Testament and are these models for us? Maybe they're not. Maybe not everything done in the New Testament we have to copy. Maybe we have to ask that question. But uh, is there any way in which the training was done in the New Testament? Yeah. And is it mandatory for us and so on? We are asking questions about New Testament teaching, New Testament models. And the Old Testament as well, but uh, church is very much a New Testament thing. But uh, now, how do people get trained in the in the Bible? Well, the answer is the first generation doesn't get trained. When you think of the great uh, heroes of the Bible, <coughs> Moses and uh, Elijah and the Apostle Paul, where, where did they get trained? Well, they didn't get trained. They just fell from heaven. God trained them. They had a certain background in their history. Paul was a converted rabbi. He spoke Greek, he spoke Hebrew, he was a Roman citizen. His whole, his whole past had been shaped by God. He was perfect for the job that God raised him to do. When you think of Moses growing up in the, in the court of Pharaoh, having the perfect education of, of that day, and uh, being trained by God and trained by his life's story. And when you find great pioneers in the history of the church, you often find they have no training at all. They're just trained by God. And I could work it out even in modern times. Who, who trained Charles Spurgeon? Well, nobody trained him. He grew up in his grandfather's home. For some reason, he grew up with his grandfather. I'm not quite sure why. But uh, his grandfather was a congregational minister. He had all these hundreds of Puritan books, and Spurgeon grew up reading them, knowing them, and uh, was saturated in theology and Puritan doctrine, even as a child. And then he has this amazing gift of, of speaking. He's a natural speaker. And someone tricks him into preaching. You know the story of how Charles Spurgeon began to preach? Somebody tricked him into preaching. Some pastor said, well, there's a young guy, there's a young guy uh, preaching at such and such a place. I, I think he ought to go along. He, he needs somewhere like you there. He, he, he designed a rather clever sentence to send Spurgeon somewhere without telling him that Spurgeon was the preacher. <laughs> and so Spurgeon went with some young fellow, and he said to the young fellow, well, I hope the Lord blesses you. And the young guy said, what do you mean? I'm not preaching, you're preaching. <laughs> Spurgeon said, no, I can't preach. And the guy said, no, if you don't preach, no one will, because I can't preach. And Spurgeon thought, all right, I better, do, I better do the best I can. And as a 15-year-old, he, he preaches at some church, and God is there. 
and he soon becomes a pastor, he's a teenager, and one day, one day someone despises him because he's a teenager and, and ridicules him in some public meeting. But there happens to be a man there from London, from the New Park Street Church, which is a famous old church, but it was, it was on rather hard days, it would run down. And the guy thought, this is the man our church needs. And he wrote a letter to the teenager, Charles Spurgeon of Waterbeach, outside Cambridge, and said, come and preach for the new punk tree. Spurgeon wrote back and said, I think you've got the wrong guy. I think it must be some other Spurgeon. You know, I don't think I can come. And the guy writes back and says, no, no, we mean you. Come and preach. And within a few months, Spurgeon is the pastor of that church. He preaches one Sunday evening, and 20 more come Sunday evening. Even in one day, the news gets around. Come and hear this young guy. And they finally call him. And, and su- Sunday by Sunday, the church is going, going up in 50s, 100s, 150s. In a few weeks, they, they can't get the people in the building. They, they have to start rebuilding, rebuilding the church. They, they use every possible commodity. They then have to hire the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, which will hold, te- hold 7,000. And they pack the church. And, and they still can't get them all in. There are thousands. He's a teenager. Still only about 19. Who trained Spurgeon? God tra- tra- trained Spurgeon. One day someone said to him, we think you ought to have some sort of theological training. And Spurgeon said, yeah, right, maybe you're right. And he made an appointment to go and see the principal of, what was it called? I think it was called something like the Stepney Theological College. It was the Congregational this College in those days. And so he goes to this college and he's going to be interviewed for uh, a position in the college. And someone says, oh, just, just wait there, the principals are coming. And he waits. And he waits, and the principal never comes. He stays there for hours, about two hours. He doesn't want to sort of uh, rush them or complain. So he stays there for about two hours. And finally he comes out and says, you, you know, I, I don't, I'm not offending you, but I thought I had an appointment. And the secretary, whoever it was, said, oh, we, we didn't know where you were. He was in that room waiting for you. Where were you? Oh, well, I was in this room. They missed each other by being in wrong rooms. And Spurgeon never did see the principal of the college. And he felt that God had ordained that. He felt that was God. God does not want me in this place. And he refused ever to have any training from that point on. Who people would despise Spurgeon. He was untrained, never went to college. He would have 14,000 books in his library. He was a brilliant intellectual, but he had no technical training. And... uh, Others like Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Who, what training did Dr. Lloyd-Jones have? Probably the best preacher in 20th century Britain. Died in 1981. What was his training? Well, he was trained as a doctor. He was a medical doctor. At Bart's Hospital. That's all he had. He had nothing else. This sort of natural speaker. You find that the first generation people don't have any training. They just fall from heaven. They're just from God. And God trains them. He trains them in their backgrounds. And so on. So when you do get any kind of training in the Bible, it's not the first generation, it's the second generation. When someone like Paul has been around for a long time, or Elijah, or Moses, and they really be, people begin to ask questions of well, who's going to succeed, what, where, where, don't, don't we need helpers and workers? Then the next phase is where training comes in. And the way in which it's done in the Bible is the man who's been raised by God Elijah, Moses, Jesus, Paul, Samuel. These people just are given an amazing background. Think of Samuel as a four-year-old boy. These amazing origins of, of God's key men. 
then they need assistance and they have to prepare for what happens when they're no longer around and they need to extend themselves in other ways. And so they train others to do their work. So Moses has a little assistant, Joshua, and he goes everywhere where Moses is. When Moses is going up into the mountain, Joshua's with him. He's always there. One day Joshua's going to be Moses' successor. Sort of successor, not, not that he's actually doing what Moses did. He's got a new job. But he learns a lot by being under Moses. And Elijah trains Elisha, and Elisha goes everywhere, wherever Elijah is, Elisha is there, and he says we're on the job with Elijah. Jesus, right at the beginning of his ministry, chooses 12, and the Bible says he chooses 12 to be with him. You'll say, come, follow me, and it doesn't mean just to follow my ideas, it means quit your job and travel with me. When I go to Jericho, you come. When I go to Capernaum, you come. When I go to Jerusalem, you come. Follow me. Be with me wherever I am. That's the meaning of follow. It's quite literal in the, in the Gospels. And Paul has these young guys under him, about 20 of them. We know a little bit about one or two of them. Timothy, John Mark, these, these young, younger guys who go around with Paul and this letter, 1 Thessalonians, it begins Paul and Silas and, and uh, who is it, Timothy. These people with Paul. And then think of Samuel. He has the school of the prophets. There are these young prophets. And there's a kind of school under Samuel. Samuel is their, is their one and only teacher. They're under him. But this is the New Testament way, and the Bible's way, Old Testament and New Testament, of training. And you get it everywhere. The, the next phase on, not the, not the, not the pioneers, but the, the pioneers' immediate followers, they get trained by the pioneers, the prophets, the apostles. Isaiah has his disciples, and so on. So notice that the, this kind of training that you have in the Bible is on-the-job training. You're actually with someone doing this. Do you see the contrast between that and modern ways of training? Modern ways of training are that you quit life for a few years and you go into institutions and some guy who can't preach for toffee nuts helps you to be a preacher. <laughs> That's the way it is, isn't it? I mean, when I went to theological college, I went to one of the best theological colleges of Bristol, Tyndale Hall, it's now, it's now Trinity College, Bristol. I can tell you none of those staff could preach. And they were hopeless as preachers. You know, they're trying to train me to be a preacher. And this is the way it is. And haven't you ever noticed that um, in the Western way, uh, that training is sort of academic? You, you go to some institution, you learn theory. And the people teaching you theory, they're not doing anything. They're just teaching you the theory of it. This is very typical of Western ways. It comes from the Greeks. Plato writes The Republic. He's, he writes the book on politics. He was never a politician in his life. Marx writes on Das Kapital, on economics and the needs of the people. Karl Marx never set foot in a factory in his entire life, although his, his uncle owned Philips Electrical Factory, but Marx never went in, into it. You get someone who's writing, sitting in the British Museum, writing on some desk. I've sat at the desk that he, that he worked at. No, I never got any anointing, but I've sat on it. <laughs> He sits at this desk in the British Museum writing this great German Das Kapital, but he's, he never goes to a factory. Never, never, he doesn't know any workers. It's all theory, written in a book, in a, in a library. 
This is the Western way. People who are not doing something train people to do what they are not doing by imparting to them theory. That's a weird way of training people, isn't it? But it's what we've inherited. And haven't you noticed? There's a saying about, about school teachers. Those who do, those who can do, those who can't teach. To which I add another bit. And those who can't teach, teach other people to teach. It is. What happens when a teacher is not enjoying his job? He can't control the classes and he really is struggling, really he's hating his job. What does he do? He gets a job in a teacher training college. What happens to a preacher who's really not very successful as being a pastor? He's really not doing very, very well in, in, in his pastoral work. He gets a job in a theological college. Actually, it's when you are incompetent that you go into a college to train people to do what you've just been unable to do yourself. Well, this is surely very peculiar. And it's, but it's typical of the Western world. We train people in theory. And it's very fragmented. You go to a college, one person teaches you Greek, another person teaches you, teaches you uh, Hebrew, another person teaches you uh, Bible, history. Uh, it's all fragmented. Nobody, but none of them are ministering, none of them are preaching, none of them are pastoring. They're all academic specialists with little, little dots where they're lecturing the theory. And I'm not uh, despising them. But I'm saying it's a hopeless way of training preachers. It doesn't work. Where are the preachers? Which, which of the colleges are producing preachers? And um, very often it's the exact opposite. A man can preach. And so he goes to college. And time he comes out of college, he can't preach any longer. He used to be able to preach until he went to college. And college unfits him for preaching. He goes away, disappears from the world for three years. Time he comes back, he's got all this sort of head knowledge and he's got all sorts of theories. He can't preach anymore. He could preach before he went there, but now he can't. Far, far from training him to preach, the college has trained him not to be able to preach. And the exact opposite. Now the Bible is much more practical. Jesus said, come and follow me. When I'm preaching, you be there. When I'm praying for the sick, you be there. And one day I'm going to give the job to you. I'll send you out. And one day I'll come with you. But one day I'll send you out and I won't come with you. I'll just send 70 of you all over the place. And you can come back and tell me how you did. This is New Testament training. It is on-the-job training. It is practical. It's not training in theory. It is training in actually doing things under masters and experts. And when I think of... uh, of, how, of the things that work in, in the history of the church. That's the way that, that it has worked. I sometimes ask the question, what do you think, or which do you think, was the greatest theological college of Britain in the 1960s? What do you think was the greatest theological college of Britain in the 1960s? Any answers? St. John's Nottingham, ah, London Bible College, Trinity College, Bristol. No, my answer is Westminster Chapel. You people, people would come to London, they'd be a student. They'd go to Westminster Chapel, just the, the, you know, University of London somewhere. They'd go to Westminster Chapel. After three years, they knew more Christian doctrine than people had doctorates from Oxford. Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to preach on Romans. He spent every, almost every Friday for 14 years, and he never did finish, on Romans. And you go to Oxford, you dash through Romans in one lecture. You don't really know Romans. All you, know, all you know is scholarly theories about Romans. 
Dr. Lloyd-Jones would spend an evening on one verse. He would tell you what it means. He would have read the commentaries. He would discuss interpretation. Then he would start pressing. Then he would be pressing it upon you. Are you doing this? Are you obeying this? He would be preaching. He would be pressing upon the people. And it would change your whole life. You'd never forget what you learned. You'd get more in one sermon at Westminster Chapel than you would a college, uh, a term in Oxford. And all over the world, you, you get people who they say, oh, well, if you really know where I learned anything, it was Westminster Chapel. And I've had a little bit of the same privilege. When I first went to Nairobi in 1986, I'd been there, but I went away and then came back to Nairobi. And um, I wanted to do something on Hebrews, and I started preaching on Hebrews. I, I preached everywhere on Hebrews. They didn't call me Michael Eaton, they called me Mr. Hebrews. <laughs> and uh, I preached about two and a half times a week in different sermons, but... Uh, I've noticed over the years that if I've ever had any impact upon people's lives, it's normally that Hebrews. I meet people who, I knew them 20 years ago, and they'll say to me, you know, everything I ever learned, I learned from Hebrews. I learned from those days. I was just preaching at lunchtime services. People dashed, dashed into church for, for, for a lunchtime service. I preached for 25, 25 minutes. They go home again. But they're 20 years later, they're saying, everything I ever knew, I learned from that. And this is true of me. I, did, I didn't learn to preach from uh, any college. I've got five theological degrees. I learned, I learned nothing from any of them. I know I learned, if I, know, if I know anything, I learned it from Dr. Lloyd-Jones and a few other people who I, who I, who I watched and observed and I'm going to be like them. That's, that's where you, you learn how to preach and minister. You, you come under the anointing. You, you learn something from the great men of God. I don't despise the academic knowledge. I believe in it. But I believe it's got to be used in the right way. And um, the academic information is necessary, but it's no good just uh, going to some place and, and imbibing detached academic knowledge. But I would think that where we've got to in these things at the moment, we have reached a crisis. That things are worse in this particular area than they've ever been in the history of the world. Our theological colleagues are hopeless. They are utterly hopeless and uh, we have lost the Bible. It's my, it's my opinion that more than ever, we have lost the Bible. I think we are almost back in medieval times where people knew Latin and the common people could not, couldn't possibly read their Bible. It's all locked up in Latin. And I would think the same thing's happened again. It's, it's locked up in technical studies. And for ordinary people, the Bible is lost. I don't think there's ever been an area, an epoch in the history of the church since pre-Reformation times when the church is ignoring and neglecting the Bible as it is today. I'm not blaming anybody because I don't think it's the fault of the common people. It's the fault of the pastors. But then I'm not blaming the pastors either because it's, it's the fault of those who ought to be helping the pastors. It's, it's, it's the fault of the people, the intellectual people at the top. Intellectuals ought to be, as it were, the, the teachers of the whole church. Go to, go to something like Luther's University of Wittenberg. And here's Luther lecturing on Genesis. He spent 10 years lecturing on Genesis. You can buy it today in eight volumes. He would go week by week and clause by clause. I asked the question, was, was Luther's Wittenberg a university or was it a church? And I can tell you there was no difference from Luther's preaching and Luther, Luther's lecturing and Luther's preaching in the parish church. 
You can hear, you could have gone to hear the Wittenberg Parish Church on a Sunday morning and hear Luther preaching in the parish church and you could go to his lectures in the university midweek. There's no difference. He's doing the same thing to the students as he is to the people. He is preaching. He's taking the word of God. He's exegeting it. He's dealing with matters of interpretation. And then he's pressing it upon, upon the people. He's relating it to common people. He's saying the Pope does this, and this does this, and this is it. But the Bible says this. He's applying it and pressing, pressing it upon the people. And people would travel from, from London. William Tyndale traveled to Wittenberg just to sit under Luther. People would go to Calvin's Geneva just to sit under him for a, under his ministry for a few months. And it would transform their life. And this was the way training was done. There wasn't much of a sharp distinction between academic lecturing and preaching. It was really all the same thing. And they would write these great expositions. I'm not saying we can just take them over because we can't. We can't live in the 21st century as if we were in the 16th century. You can't do that. But we have to do in our age what they did in their age. You can't just take it over because it's not relevant. What Luther was saying to the Catholic Church in the 16th century is irrelevant in the 21st century. So you can't just take it over. But we have to do in our generation what they did in their generation, which is expound the word of God. Now, at the moment, this is is all entirely lost. And I've watched it over the course of my lifetime as a teenager. I would would walk from central London to five Wigmore Street, where the Scripture Union (coughs) bookshop was uh, located. And there you'd find all these commentaries and expositions. first book I ever bought as a teenager when I'd just been saved was Bishop Ryle on John's Gospel. Oh, what power was there was in that book and how, how it blessed me as a young teenager. There'll be these expositions and the, and the Scripture Union would have these books on, on, on expounding the Scripture back in the 1960s. But I realise now... I didn't know then, but I realised now it was the end of an epoch. That I would never see that again. I would see, I'd watch it slowly disappearing. You go into, there's no scripture union book in the shop there now, any day. Anyway, but you go into some Christian bookshop nowadays, what you'll find is novels and trinkets and rapture stories and, and this, that and the other. But you won't find anything expounding the scriptures. No one, no one reads them. They can't read them because nobody writes them. When they do write them, they're detached and cold and academic. I had to go, I had to, go to London with Nick yesterday, I think it was, and I went to two, two Christian bookshops. One of them was uh, CLC, Christian Literary Crusade. There, there you buy the devotional bookshops. Then we had to go to another one, back behind Westminster Abbey somewhere, and there's the academic ones. The academic ones are dead and hopeless. You've got some stuff in there I want to read, but I wouldn't give it to anybody else to read, just this dead academic stuff. I might want to read it, but it's, it's not going to change any churches anywhere. And the, the Christian bookshops don't have anything substantial. The substantial bookshops don't have anything Christian. <laughs> There's a detachment between the academics. So I hold the, the opinion that we need to start all over again. And um, I'm conscious I'm in Britain. I would be saying something a bit different if I was in India or Africa or Kenya or somewhere. In Europe, we inherit a lot of tradition. I don't know quite how we can reverse some of the traditions we're in. In many parts of the world, you don't have that tradition. You're in zero. You've got nothing. And you're starting from scratch. And, And I hold the view that as best as we can, it's easier in the third world than it is in Europe. But as best as we can, we need to start all over again. 
We need to go back to zero and start again. And this is a task for the whole church. The older I get, the more I realize that Bible reading is a collective task. I think we tend to think of Bible reading very individualistically. Um, I don't think we should. And remember that printing was only invented in the 15th century. Nobody did any personal Bible reading before the 15th century. And even when printing was invented, the vast majority of people could not afford to buy a book. It would cost you a year's salary to, to buy something. And uh, Bibles were not available. Even when printing was there and, and uh, books were being printed and Bibles were being printed, the average person could not buy a Bible. And in Britain, in the 16th century, a century or so after the inventing of printing, finally, it, sort of, it was sort of agreed that Christians could read their Bible and parish churches in the Church of England would have one Bible chained to a lectern in the parish. You'd go into the church building and there was one Bible chained to the lectern so you couldn't take it away. And that was the only Bible that was there for you. And people could come in the church and read the one and only Bible that the parish had. There was no, there was no personal Bible reading. And then slowly it got a bit cheaper and uh, finally you could actually own your own Bible. But even when you read the traditional evangelical uh, talk about having your quiet time or your devotional time. I always think they're a bit funny. They are so upper class. It's acting as though you put all your servants to, to work and, you, and you, then have your, you then have your quiet time and uh, so on. The idea that you get up at six and catch your train from Victoria to go to work, I mean, that, that's not in any of the books. You, you have to sort of get up. It's, it's imagining a kind of leisured life where you, where you have your Bible reading in the morning. It's all right when you've got your servants and your household and you're some upper-class guy. It doesn't really work for the average 21st century person. We can't live in the 21st century as if we're in the 16th century or even in the 19th century. We've got to do things for today. And... Uh, so, so Bible reading is not very individualistic. It only became very personal in the 18th and 19th centuries. And even then, when you read the, the advice, it's sort of acting that you're a very upper-class kind of guy. It's not really ministering to, to the workers in the household. And, and in the modern times, people have to get up at the crack of dawn to <coughs> commute into London or something. So we surely have to <coughs> do things in a modern way. We have to re- find new ways of doing these things. And it's a collective task. And the whole church has to work together at coming under the word of God. And there are certain phases to it. We have to, first of all, deal with translations and what, what the text means. We have to preach it. We have to apply it. And we, we, we've got behind in this. We, we've lost all this. We're a long way from doing it. And I, it's going to be a big task at ever recovering it. And, but, this is, but this is where we're at. We need the whole church to be working, as it were, of putting ourselves under the word of God. Our first task is to have a kind of exposition in our head of the whole Bible. And, and no one person can do that, generally speaking. I've tried it, but, but generally speaking, you can't do it. It needs the whole church, as it were, coming under the authority of the word of God. Pastors and Bible study groups and fellowships expounding whole books of the Bible, getting the teaching of the Bible section by section. And it needs a kind of summarizing. This is what used to be done, but we've lost it. 
It is a kind of summarizing. If, if I've read the whole Bible, now, what does the Bible teach about the church? That's what we're doing now. What, what, what's the conclusions? Your doctrine is your conclusions after lots of Bible reading. Your doctrine is your conclusions after lots of Bible reading. You read every bit of your Bible. Then you say, so what does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about church? What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about Jesus coming again? What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? You gather what you've learned from reading the whole Bible. And this is gone from the churches. Nobody's expounding books of the Bible anymore. Nobody's really expounding scripture anymore. But, well, I'm generalizing, of course, but... Um, we have to go back to the word of God. We have to go back to getting what the doctrine is out of the scripture. But even then, we're not finished. We then have to preach it. And uh, I, I don't think people really, often I think people don't really see what preaching is. Preaching is not lecturing. We talk, there's a kind of a movement in certain parts of the church to go back to expository preaching. We must have expository preaching, they say. And uh, well, I agree with that, except that the emphasis is on the second word, not the first. It's not expository yeah. preaching, it's expository preaching. Yeah. It's got to be preaching. And, and often what is thought to be expository preaching is not expository preaching, it's expository lecturing. You, you, you go to certain churches which are famous for their Bible teaching and you get a, an exposition of the Bible and everybody's sitting there taking notes, the great expositor, the great Bible preachers there and you're taking notes and so on. It's like a university. But I want to tell you, churches are not universities. And the difference between a university is you're sort of taking notes and you're, you're sort of lecturing and you're getting lots of head information. And uh, what we need is not, is not a lecturing but expository preaching preaching in the power of the holy spirit i i sometimes have a bit of a problem when i'm at meetings people sometimes say to me and they they don't know that they're persecuting me but what they sometimes do is they say well pastor eaton's here today and he's like he always says a lot you really better get your notebooks ready but he's going to say something worth saying hope you've got your notes you'll need to write down what he says i hate it when people say that what i want to say is Sometimes I do say it. What I want to say is, did anybody get their notebooks ready on the day of Pentecost? Did Peter say, today, this is the day of Pentecost. I'm really going to say something good. Hope you've got your notebooks ready. Are you ready? Take, take notes of my sermon. Could, could anybody have ever done that on the day of Pentecost? Of course they couldn't. Why not? Well, because there was something there that was more powerful than just this sort of information. He wasn't, he wasn't just uh, giving information and giving a nice lecture on, on Jesus being the Messiah. No, no. He said, you crucified him. You, God has highly exalted him. You, you crucified the Son of God. And, and they're crying, oh, what shall we do? What shall we do? And, and they're crying. They're interrupting the sermon. There's God is moving there. That's preaching. You see, the, the exposition is only, as it were, the backbone. It's only the, the basic uh, content is there, there somewhere, but, and you're, but you're not just, as it were, reciting the meaning of Scripture. You're not publicly interpreting Scripture. You're taking Scripture and, and a message for now, and it's piercing people's hearts. Now, you see, that's an altogether different world from the world we live in. We have lost all of that. It's all gone. And uh, Luther and Calvin and the Puritans and some of these great saints of days gone by, they were highly educated, capable, intellectual people. But they were not university professors. They preached and people's hearts were pierced. 
And so, I'm still, I'm still you, may, you may think I've changed my subject. I haven't. I'm still on the topic of training. You see, this is how the whole people of God get trained. And I think we need to notice there's no syllabus which is for pastors, which is not for the people. You see, why should we have a theological? Is there something you need to know in university which you don't need to know in church? I don't think so. Um, the Bible is not for the academics, it's not even for the pastors. The Bible is for everybody. And that means that there's nothing in the scripture which is not for everybody. And so the, the trainers are not sort of certain people in a very specialised situation who train very specialised people which the ordinary people don't get. The trainers are the pastors, they're the trainers. That's what Ephesians 4 says. God gave apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists to, to prepare God's people for works of service. They are the trainers, and they're training God's people in works of ministry. If you have a congregation of 500 people, you have 500 ministers in that church. And the, the, the preachers and the teachers are the trainers of the whole people. And then out of that, of that whole people, you'll get certain people who emerge as that's rather gifted. And they're, 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 they're learning just from the preaching. They're learning from the very, the whole church is like a kind of theological college. Not that it's an academic university, but in terms of its, um, uh, it's, it's full of content. It's saying a lot. And it's saying it's in power, and it's, uh, it's done by preaching, not just by some kind of lecturing. But there are certain people who, who rise up as teachers. I think of a young man... A, Good friend of mine, Joe, Joe Imakando in Bishop Joe Imakando, as he's, he's now, nowadays in Lusaka. He was a young guy who I knew in <coughs> Lusaka. He used to drink a lot. He was hanging around the bar quite a lot. He'd be found in the discos and, and so on. He was a bit of a rebel as a teenager. But uh, we had a congregation in Lusaka with a other lively young people. And one day someone gave him a tract. And he was, he was, in, the, he was in the bar and he put it, it was raining and he put on this raincoat and someone gave him a tract and he just put it in his pocket and took no notice. The next week he was a bit drunk again and he was back in the same bar and he had the same raincoat on. And he put his hand in his pocket and there was this tract he'd been given a week ago. And this time he read it. And it, it pierced his heart. And not very long after, he came to salvation. Turned up at the church where, whose address was on the tract and joined, joined the Young People's Fellowship. <coughs> and almost, imme- almost immediately, within a, within a couple of months, he was doing a bit of preaching and teaching. He was a natural speaker. And uh, in no time, he was, as it were, taking the lead. And I knew immediately, I have a successor. I have someone who's going to be my successor when I move on. This teenager, God has raised him up. And I used to try to train him, and I sent him off to a college. But um, one day I said to him, I said, Joe, I've, uh, you know, I, I'm really wanting you to be trained in ministry, but uh, I've got some bad news for you. I said, I've got some bad news for you. I said, you know, normally when people get trained, you get sent off to all nations, Bristol, or you go to Trinity College, Bristol, or something. Joe, I'm not going to send you anywhere. You're going to go down the road to the college outside Nairobi. I said, I've got some more bad news for you. You're not even going to do the course. I've made, I've made a sort of arrangement with the college. You're going to do Bible only. 
You're just going to go there and do Bible, 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 Bible for a couple of months, then you're going to come back. You won't even get a piece of paper. They won't even give you a degree. You'll get nothing. I'm sorry for, sorry for the bad news, I said. But uh, that's what I'm offering you. Bible, Bible, Bible in Nairobi for a couple of months and come back and minister. He said to me, Pastor, I don't care about bits of paper. I just want to serve God. And he came back. Today, he's a pastor of a congregation of 6,000 in Lusaka. How did he get trained? He got trained by being saved by the witness of, a, of Young People's Fellowship. He sat under my preaching. Almost immediately, he starts sort of modelling on me. He, he starts reading Spurgeon. He preaches a bit like Spurgeon because he's read so many of Spurgeon's books. And he's growing, leaves and bounds. But wherever it comes, there's a kind of anointing upon him. He's growing and growing. Sometimes the president comes to his, to, to his church. Where's his training come from? Came from nowhere, just the life of the church. But out of the life of the church comes somebody who's gifted, a kind of natural preacher. Preachers are not made, they are born. You're either a preacher or you're not. And if you're not, no course in the world can make you a preacher. Your, your preachers are born. They've got this kind of a instinctive uh, knack of knowing what to say and uh, they, they can speak not because they're trained. If anything, the training is in danger of damaging their gift. They have to be allowed to emerge under the Holy Spirit. So this is surely the Bible's way of training. And I think we need to get back to it. There's no such thing as a special, generally speaking, there's no such thing as a kind of specialised syllabus. The whole church needs to be, uh, as it were, training people just by the preaching. Uh, it is the preaching that does the training. It's, it's doctrinal, but it's not lecturing. It is preaching, and the whole church is well taught, and out of that, certain people emerges. And then you may have to give them certain technical things. You maybe will make them learn Greek, or make them learn Hebrew. You teach them a, a few technical things. But um, even that's for the whole congregation. In Nairobi, would, you, would you believe this? In Nairobi, where I have people, very humble people who've never been to, some of them never been to secondary school, they speak English, they speak Swahili, they speak uh, maybe Kikuyu or uh, a language. They're already speaking three more languages. In Nairobi, I teach Hebrew and Greek every Saturday morning. I get very humble people, they're very ordinary people, they're not, they're not uh, graduates or anything like that. We do an hour and a half in Greek. First hour, I teach them some little bit of Greek grammar. Second hour, we go through, second, second uh, half hour, we go through just translating something. The third half an hour, I preach it to them. We apply it. I remember once um, spending a morning, and we spent the whole morning on John 1, 9. The light that lightens every man was coming into the world. And I made them translate it, taught them a bit about Greek grammar, made them translate it. And then we said, what does it mean that the, the light is coming into the world? And we spent half an hour just talking, and, and the last half an hour is preaching and they go back, they've not only learned a bit of Greek, their lives are never going to be the same. The Son of God has come into the world. And we have a 10 minute break, and we start all over again in Hebrews, in Hebrew. And I take a verse in Ecclesiastes You say people can't do this? Oh, they can, they can. They can, they can learn enough. And even the common people can, can do this. They can. Churches need to, do, need to do things that the theological colleges do badly. We need to do it well, we need to do it skillfully. It can be done. Well, there you are, I'm being a bit revolutionary. But, um, but surely this is in harmony with the New Testament. We need to go back to 
to preaching the scriptures. We need to go back to summarizing the message and the doctrine of the scriptures. And then, if we're still not finished, we then need to be able to apply the scriptures and press it and preach it and use it and live it. And particular problems like how you apply it need attention in the age in which we live. One reason why the women's ministry thing is so difficult is we don't always know how to apply scripture. Even when you know what it means, you don't even always know what to do with it. You have some passage that says women must cover their heads, you're not quite sure what to do with it. Or wash each other's feet, and when did you wash anyone's feet last? You don't always know what to do with it. And we need principles in which we know how to apply scripture. And mainly the reason why scripture has, has disappeared from the churches is partly because everything's become very intellectualized and it's not suitable for the common people. But also, I think in the last 50 years or so, we've struggled with how to apply scripture. There's all sorts of stuff in it which you can't just automatically apply. And we need to help each other. It's the task of the whole church. We need to help each other in how to apply scripture. We need to go back to the Bible. And we need to seek a new outpouring of the Spirit upon our land. But it's got to be an outpouring upon the gospel. The gospel's got to be there. You've got to know God's word, know how sinful and wicked the human race is. Know about the bondage of men in sin. Know that Jesus shed his blood. Know the power of new births. You've got to teach the new birth. Nobody's a Christian unless they're born again from above by the Spirit of God. You need to go back to these old, old ways. I think I told you, I can't always remember what I've said to who to, and who I've said it to, but I think I told you when they, when they asked George Whitfield, why do you keep on preaching? You must be born again. He said, because you must be born again. This message of the new birth, we need to go back to it and preach it and proclaim it and work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That, I believe, is the New Testament approach for training. I would add one more thing. You may say, is, is there any point where ministers and pastors need to be uh, specially trained as pastors? I would say no, because there's no syllabus which is specially for pastors. Where they do need help is in knowing how to apply things with particular problems. And there, I think, the remedy is pastors' fraternals, not colleges, but pastors' fraternals, where they come together and uh, they discuss particular applications. Many years ago, I used to be a member of the pastors' fraternal that Dr. Lloyd-Jones ran at Westminster Chapel. He would hold these things every Monday, once a month, for pastors. And I can remember being there one Monday, many, 20 or 30 years ago now, and a guy stood up and he said, well, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I've got, I've got a, a problem in my, in my church and I hope you, you, you can help me. And he said, the problem is over acupuncture. He said, you know this little acupuncture where you stick pins in people and the electricity goes there? And this, this was in days when acupuncture was first being heard of. Nowadays we know a bit more. But this, these were in the early days when acupuncture was just coming into Britain. And this pastor said, well, you know, this guy, this, one, one, one of the members of my church wants to go to this acupuncture clinic. Well, is it all right? Is it demonic? It comes from China or somewhere. Is it, is it occult? Is it really pagan religion? Can I really do this? Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, well, no, well, well, well then, brethren, he said in his older Welsh accent, what do you think of that? 
And we all looked at each other and we didn't know what we thought of it. <laughs> and, and so he tried to sort of get out of us as much as we knew, but we were just pulling our ignorance. We didn't know anything. And then, then he would say, well, now, and he would then speak. And I, I remember one occasion he would speak for an hour on the history of medicine and how Westerners would be very... Uh, very uh, suspicious of anything new coming from the East. But sometimes it might be authentic, but they were rejecting it because of medical prejudice. And he would speak for an hour on the history, but he, of course he was a doctor. He would preach for an hour on the history of medicine, and finally, an hour later, he would tell, tell the guy what to do about acupuncture. And, uh, and I, you see, this is the, the need of this kind of thing. I remember being, having, having had that instruction from Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I remember being in... Kisumu in West Kenya once many a few years ago and I was preaching a lot on creation on the way God created everything and one and then I would hold these pastors fraternals I, I learned it from Dr. Lloyd-Jones I would gather all the pastors of West Kenya and I would not preach to them I would just say now tell me what's going on in your churches and they would say this and this and this and this and then I was there on one occasion and a guy stood up and he said pastor I, I've got a problem and I said yeah what was that he said you know in our village in our village it is an African village in West Kenya. You know, when someone gets malaria, they go to this, this tree that's, that's down the road and they scrape the bark off the tree and they make a kind of sort of juice out of the bark of the tree and they give it to us to drink and it cures our malaria. Now, can we do this? Is it, is it sort of occult or are we worshipping a demon? Or, you know, can, can we really, are we allowed to do this? You see, it's the same principle that I'd heard Dr. Lloyd-Jones on 20, 30 years before. Really the same thing. Some, some unknown medical technique which seems to work, but you're not quite sure whether you can trust it or whether maybe you're getting into some occult realm. And I remembered what I'd heard from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And this was the answer I gave. I said, you have to separate what has got worship in it and what is just chemistry or biology. If something is just a kind of medicine and it, it just sort of works, and, and everyone in the village knows that when you rub that poor, poor leaf on, it cures you of this, or when you drink that bark of the tree, it gets rid of your malaria. It's just a kind of medical thing. You don't know why it works, but it works. It's all right, you can do it. But if, if you go to some service or worship, and they're worshipping demons, and in the middle of the, of the occult worship, they're saying, drink this cup of the medicine from the bark of the tree, it'll cure you, you're in worship. Oh, that's different. You, you've, you're suddenly, you're in pagan worship. That you cannot be in. Now, you don't get taught those things in theological college, and you don't even sort of know about it until some guy raises it as a problem. I was in India not long ago, and a guy said, Pastor, would you come for lunch? We, we want to ask some questions. And my heart sunk. You know, sometimes people persecute me with questions. And uh, I thought, oh, no. I said, yeah. I said, yeah, all right, then. I wasn't very enthusiastic. I thought, you know, I was going to have a lunchtime of who was Cain's wife and this kind of thing, you know. And, uh, but I was rebuked because, actually, the questions were just amazing. And we had lunch. And then the guy said, well, we've got one real problem. And I said, yeah, what's that? I said, you know, well, what do we do when we go into someone's home, this is, in, this is in Mumbai, in India, and we witness and we testify, and the whole house, the whole house gets saved. What am I doing? <laughs> the whole house gets saved. Seems better anyway. <laughs> the whole house gets saved except one. And the head of the home doesn't want to be saved. And uh, so everyone's saved apart from one. And so we have our meetings in the house, 
and there on the wall are idols. There's all these idols and statues and uh, the, the demons of the home in this Mumbai suburb. And we're holding a Christian meeting. Can we hold a Christian meeting where everyone's saved except one in a home that's got idols on the wall? They don't teach you that in theological college. I never learned about that in Trinity College, Bristol. And I had to think a little bit. And I said, I'll tell you what to do. And you start your meeting, you get a big cloth, go and buy some nice big cloth. And you cover the idol, you stick pins in the wall, and you cover the idol, and we say, we declare in the name of Jesus, this is, this is a holy house in the name of Jesus. And you, you can't even see the idol. And you conduct your meeting, and the power of the Spirit comes down. Then the guy take the sheet, the other guy take the sheet away later. And you turn, you have, that was the bit of advice I gave him. Best I could think of at the time. But um, you see, that's where pastors need help with particular problems. Or someone says, you know, there's incest, and uh, someone's had a child between two people who shouldn't have had a child. What do we do now? Do we break, they've just said their say, do we, do we break up the relationship? What do we do? It's sort of incestuous, and, uh, and there's this, and there's this. I mean, what messes, what troubles churches get themselves into? And these pastoral questions, you do not get help with these at college. And people, the, the professors don't even ever have these problems anyway. We do need times when we come together as advisor. And this is where you can have young people's meetings, dealing with particular problems that young people have at school, or when some teacher demands that they believe in evolution, or when some girl is under pressure to do this and this. This is where we do need, as it were, the sectional meetings in the church, when you need particular application of the gospel to particular realms. And that's where you do need a kind of special syllabus for the pastors. But it's not, a, it's not an intellectual thing. It is how to apply things. And that's when we need pastors fraternals. And Jesus would do that. People, the disciples would sit down with Jesus and say, well, Lord, you know, uh, teach us to pray. He's like, yeah, I'll tell you how to pray. And they, they, would, they would get his, his personal advice from him and so on. And Paul would be there with his elders at Ephesus encouraging them. And this, we need this. So I hold the view that uh, the, the Western method has let us down. It's run to nothing. It's not doing any good at the moment. And the church has more or less lost its Bible. You go to some college, it's all academic and intellectual. doesn't apply the word of God. We may, I hold the view we must, start, we must start all over again. And we begin with from the bottom upwards. We train the churches in the word of God until the whole people know the word of God. Maybe some churches ought specially to be a kind of training church. I don't know that every pastor is capable of teaching Greek and Hebrew, but I would like to see that in every area of Britain or Kenya or anywhere else, that within 50 miles or so, there's a church where someone can teach you Greek and Hebrew. And it's a church, not a college, a church where the pastor will teach you what he knows on a, on a Saturday morning or whatever. And we train each other. The whole people of God are well taught in the things of God. And out of that emerges gifted people who are the next generation, who have anointing upon them, who have, the gift, who have gifts of preaching and teaching or whatever. And then surely fraternals and fellowship is where we give special help. And uh, experienced men of God and experienced men and women who know the Lord counsel each other and help each other in these practical ways. And we all move together in establishing the churches. Well, that's my view of training. Um,